I can't tell for sure, but I kind of believe she believes that. Amen. That's good stuff. Thanks. Amen. Philippians chapter 4 today, please. Philippians chapter 4. We'll give you some verses here in just a moment, but um, again, we're in our Why Rejoice series, and we've been speaking the last few weeks about the reality that, boy, life brings quite a few tough turns, and we've had a lot of difficult situations here in, uh, recently, and uh, boy, our world is kind of upside down today. And, um, you know, even as believers, if we're not careful, we can become somewhat discouraged and distraught. We can find ourselves being a little bit critical and cynical about everything going on around us. And the fact is, is that we have so many reasons to rejoice as believers. That's what the Bible teaches us, and that's what we've been considering out of the book of Philippians here these last few weeks. Again, there's good reason to be concerned about the direction of our culture and our society, our country. Uh, There's no doubt that we are facing obstacles and we're facing uh, situations that maybe we haven't faced in the past, or at least not in our lifetime, and yet, the fact is, is that we have good reason to rejoice. And um, I'll tell you what, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not a real fan of getting around people that are just downright boohooing all the time. That, 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 doesn't, that doesn't encourage me in the least. I, I, I mean, I understand there's issues to be dealt with, but if you get around somebody and all they ever do is they're just critical, oh, life's terrible, oh, everything's horrible, the direction we're going is just miserable, and I don't see any hope for America, I don't see any hope for any young I would never have kids in this day and age, and... Are you kidding me? People said that when I was having kids. I would never have kids in this day and age. Well, my kids are grown up. Now they're having kids. And it's like, uh, I, wouldn't, I, w- I wouldn't tell them that. Why would I want to tell them that? Right. Anybody that's able to have a kid probably wants to have a kid. And the fact is, is that this is as good a time as any to have a child. I mean, I mean, honestly, what's the difference? I mean, you deal with it. You live life, man. You know, you face life. You deal with it. And as children of God, we've got so many reasons to rejoice. I mean, why, why not bring a child into the world that will live for God? That will be a light that shines in the darkness. A young life that will ultimately take a stand for Jesus Christ when we're gone. What's wrong with that? That's a good thing. So it says, I don't want to submit them to this horrible world we live in. Well, you're submitted to it. You doing all right? You're making it. Ground them in the things of Christ. Let them see that he's all, that, that, all, all that, he, he, you know, that he's everything to you. And if he's everything to them, they'll be just fine too. Right. So anyway, um, yeah, they'll face problems. We all do. But, man, I'll tell you what, we live in a great day and a great time in history. Now, Jesus could come back today. You know, we talked about that a little bit ago. And, I mean, in our, our study, we've seen, that, we've seen the promise. He says in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform to the day of Jesus Christ. Man, from the very moment that he took residency up in your heart, man, I mean, you have God himself living in you, and he began a work in your life that he will perform to the very day that Christ himself returns and raptures you out of here. Or that he closes you, or your eyes close in death and you meet him on the other side. He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to quit on you. Let's not quit on him. The promise. We see the prize. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, Paul the Apostle says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying, listen, the past has no power over me. 
But not only that, but past successes don't rule my life either. The fact is, is that there is a work to be done. There's a God in heaven and there's a need on earth. And I'm just going to be God's servant. I'm just going to yield myself to him completely. I'm going to allow him to use me in a way that I could not be used any other way except he do it in and through me. I'm just reaching out. I'm trying to accomplish what God has called me to do. And boy, I tell you what, God has a purpose and a plan for every life represented here. Whether you're saved or lost, I want you to know today, whether you've ever entered into a relationship with Christ or not, the fact is God has a purpose for you and a plan for your life. He can make sense of what's going on around you. The fact is, is His Word is still true, and He can help you today find that purpose in which you were created for. And let me tell you, one of the great reasons you were created was to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He created you, you owe Him your very best. The prospect, we said. And we're talking about expectation. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, actually 20 and 21, we said, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he's able even to subdue all things unto himself. And we talked about the fact that that, that word conversation as it's broke down, as it's, we deal with it, it has to do with the fact that we're, our citizenship is in heaven. That literally we're already citizens of heaven. The very moment we get saved, we're already a citizen of heaven. Oh, I know uh, when I'm born in, born in the United States of America, I'm a citizen of the United States. But boy, even more than that, when I was born in the family of God, I was made a citizen of heaven. And the fact is, is that we have that citizenship. And so really, this world is not our home anymore. We're just passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. That's a reality of the believer's life. And that's a reason to rejoice. Because when everything's grim and dark and, and, and dis- disturbing here on earth, we have a heavenly city in which we belong to. It's our citizenship. It's our place of residence. And we're merely ambassadors here on earth. We're merely representing our king and our kingdom to the kings and kingdoms of this earth. Well, that's a prospect. That's an expectation. And then one day, because we're citizens in heaven, we're going to have a body like Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That's what he says. He says right in the passage, he says, Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body? Just like Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and there he ate uh, the fish and the honey with the disciples that day. He was here one moment, the next he was gone. He was out there and then he's in here and he doesn't have to go through a door to get there. We're going to have a glorious body like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a reason to rejoice when you think of all the hurt, the heartache and the pain and suffering that these bodies bring us, especially after a picnic. (laughs) So we have the promise, the prize and the prospect. And today... I want to talk to you another reason or share another reason why we have reason to rejoice. The power. The power. Philippians chapter 4 verse 10. Let's turn there if you would. Philippians chapter 4 verse 10 today. Over in verse 10 through 13, I want to read that passage. It goes like this. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of one, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now, in this particular passage, we note a couple of things. One, we note the apostles' appreciation. We see there in verse 10 that he's very appreciative of the people there at Philippi. 
We know that, again, as we said, he had a very unique and a very special relationship with that church and those people. Paul the Apostle had been instrumental in starting and beginning that work, and they were very glad and very excited to support him and the work and the ministry that he was doing. But there came a point in the Apostle Paul's ministry that they lost sight of him. They lost track of him. He ends up in prison. They don't even know where he's at. They're unable to help him. They're unable to give. They're unable to meet the needs in his life. And so for a couple of years, two years it seems, he was out of commission, so to speak, from, from their perspective. Although he was busy about the work, to them, they had no idea where he was or how they could help. Well, they find out that he's in prison now. And so what do they do? They send their pastor, Epaphroditus, over to the Apostle Paul. They send a gift with him, some way and some means by which to encourage him, to help him, to be a part of that ministry. And Paul is so excited, so thankful that once again they've been reunited. Once again, their fellowship begins. And he says to them, as we note in the passage, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at your last care of me hath flourished again at last. Uh, at the last your care of me have flourished again. Once again you're able to meet a need. Once again you've come to my aid. Once again you've showed up on my behalf and been a blessing and a help to me. He goes on to say, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. He said, listen, it had nothing to do with your desire, uh, uh, lack of desire. It had to do with the fact you didn't have opportunity. You didn't even know where I was. I'm so thankful. I'm so appreciative. I'm so grateful that once again we've been reunited and we're able again to fellowship and to assist and be a blessing to one another again. Also, we see in the passage that we read in verse 11 and 12, we note the apostle's attitude. His attitude. One of the great passages in the Word of God is found in verse 11 of chapter 4, when it says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. The apostle Paul, of course, has been in prison for two years here before the, the church of Philippi has recognized it, found him, and now they send this gift to him. But he says to them, listen, he says, I, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He says, listen, I've got uh, to let you know right now, you may not have been able to meet my need, but the fact is, is and, and now you have, but the, it isn't about you meeting my need alone, because truthfully, I have this attitude, I have this understanding, I have this outlook that's a little bit different. I've learned some things along the way, and I've learned to be content in whatsoever state I am. I understood when I was there in prison that God was still responsible to meet my needs. It wasn't you that was responsible, it was God that was responsible. I've learned to be content in what whatsoever state I am. And I've learned how to, how to be happy when I've got a lot. I've learned how to be happy when I don't have much. The fact is, is that that's how I'm supposed to live my life. And I'm going to live it that way, whether you contribute or whether you don't contribute, whether or not you support or whether you do support. The fact is today is that I'm content in whatsoever state I am. And I learned that along the way in my Christian life, Paul says. And may I say that's, a, that's something we need to learn. We note the apostles' attitude. And finally, we note the apostles' assertion. You say, what's that mean? Well, that's a declaration. What, look what he declares. In, in verse 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. See, you know, you lost track of me, but now you gave to me. Now you're once again in my life, and you're meeting the needs in my life. But I want you to understand that whether you met my needs or not, I learned to be content in whatsoever state I am. God is still first in my life, and God is still best in my life. And whether God gives me a lot or whether He gives me a little, the fact is He's still good. And I just want you to understand that I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Whether I have a big 
uh, amount of money in my pocket or my wallet or whether or not I have nothing in my wallet and pocket. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether I got a nice car or I got a piece of junk sitting out in the driveway. It doesn't matter whether my house is big or whether it's small. It doesn't matter whether or not I got a good paying job or I just got what I, I got and have to work ten times the amount of time it seems just to make ends meet. The fact is, is that I've learned how to be content, but the fact is, is God's enabled me to do that because I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Well, how in the world can you be content in that situation? Because I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. How in the world can you be happy in that marriage that's all messed up, in a mess in your life? Because I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. How come you can still find joy in your life, even though your children are starting to head off in the wrong direction, and every time you try to bring them back, it seems they just buck you and fight you? Because I can do all things through Christ. I'm not going to give up on my kids. I'm not going to give up on my marriage. I'm not going to give up on my country. I'm not going to give up on my church. I'll tell you why. Because I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Many times, what holds a man or a woman back is their lack of confidence. You know, you want to accomplish something in life, but you don't have the confidence. You know, I want to go to school, or I want to get an education, I want a degree, and I'd like to have a better paying job, and things like that. And all those things can be good things, but the fact is what holds you back often is the fact that you lack confidence. Boy, I wish I could be a, a, a good witness and a good soul winner out in public and around my friends and family, but you lack confidence. I wish I could be a better testimony at my workplace, but you're afraid and you're scared and maybe you lack confidence that you might fail so you don't start at all. I mean, you lack confidence. The kid goes to class and he, he, he only puts forth 50% of effort. You know why? Because he's afraid of failing. He doesn't have the confidence that if he puts his forth his best, he'll, he'll pass and he'll do well. He'd rather receive a C or a D and say, I didn't try, instead of getting a B and saying, I did not get an A. He's afraid of failing. He lacks confidence. You don't try to ride a bike because you lack confidence, believing you'll never be able to ride it. We don't try things because we're afraid of failing. We're afraid we can't do it. We lack confidence. And may I say today, in this particular passage, that in, just in, in all around life, confidence is really rooted in a couple of things. One, confidence is rooted in past failures. A lack thereof, I should say. If you have a lack of confidence, you probably have some past failures. And so you let those failures dictate your, your confidence level. Well, I tried to play baseball as a kid, and I took it right in the mouth, and everybody laughed at me, so I'd never play another sport in my life. Do you have any desire? Well, I'd like to play, but I just don't think I'll do good, so I won't play. That's a lack of confidence, and it's all based out of a failure in your life. So you lack confidence because of, of a failure. And, and often, lack of confidence is rooted in a, a past failure, or it can be rooted in a critical, or careless, a critical and careless words that were, were, were cast upon you. Maybe you were young or maybe you were even older. I mean, at work, sometimes you think, well, you know, I'd like to get a, um, a promotion at work, but I know I'll never get it because there's people telling me I don't do a good job already. Hey, you doing good. Are you doing a good job or not? Well, there's just some people who are really critical of everything I do around here. So why don't you go get another job? Well, if I go get another job, they'll just tell me the same thing. No, maybe you got a boss that's just critical and cynical. Maybe if you really found a place to work where you had a decent boss, you might find that you'd flourish there. But you lack confidence, so you won't change workplaces you won't go out and try to get a better job. Well, I'm just going to have to stick where I am. Even though I could probably make $5 an hour more, I'm just going to stay right where I'm at because I'm comfortable here. I have confidence here. I don't have confidence to go out and get another job. Because somebody told me when I was younger I was worthless. I was a big zero. I was a nothing. 
I struggle. I've always struggled with confidence because my dad never supported me, never encouraged me. I always struggle with confidence because one day my teacher told me that I was stupid. I always struggle with confidence because my mom never was there to encourage me and lift me up. And so we blame everybody in the past and all the words that were ever poured upon us. And we say, I can't have confidence because of. Let me tell you, a lack of confidence is usually rooted in one of two things. It's either rooted in a failure, a past failure that just is right there in our mind. Or it is rooted in the fact that we heard careless and critical words cast upon us. Therefore, we face circumstances and we face life with one of two attitudes. A can do or a can't do. That's basically it. And in this passage, we are introduced to a man who appears to have all the confidence in the world. This guy has all the confidence. I can do all things. <laughs> wow. Aren't you an arrogant guy? Who do you think you are? You can do everything, huh? I mean, you let a young guy come out of Bible college and say, man, with God's help, I want to build the biggest church in Ohio. And we all go, what's your problem? You stick an egotistical little punk. How dare you have any aspirations for God? Now, you're allowed to come out of college and say, I want to build the biggest business in Ohio. And everybody goes, good for you. Yes. I want to make a million dollars by the time I'm 30. Praise the Lord. Some guy says, I want to start a church. And within five years, I want it to be running 250 or 400 or 1,000. And then we go, well, you better taper that down, you prideful, arrogant kid. Taper it. Lose that attitude. Trying to exalt self. How do you know that? All I'm saying is a little ambition never hurt anybody. I think it's good. I wish some more of our Bible college students would come out of Bible college with a desire to do something for God instead of just pay, collect a paycheck. Yeah, That'd be all right with me. A can-do versus a can't-do. And the fact is, is this guy here, this apostle, he has got all the confidence in the world. He is brimming with confidence. And if we're not careful, we could be very critical of him and his confidence and somehow believe somehow that it's all about him. It's all about him having a big name. It's all about him having the biggest ministry. It's all about him getting his name in, the, in lights. It's all about him ultimately being remembered for eternity in the word of God. That's a bold statement, I would agree, that he makes. But note the end of the verse. You can't stop with, I can do all things. It continues by saying, through Christ, which strengtheneth me. See, that's the operative word. Those are, that's the important part. That's where the rubber meets the road. That determines the motivation now. Some young guy gets married to a young girl and he says, Man, I want to have the best marriage ever. Yeah, you'll see. Yeah. Yeah, good desire. Good luck. What is wrong with... Are you kidding me? Why wouldn't he want to have the best marriage ever? And that's a good goal. But the problem is, is this. Who's going to make it the best marriage ever? Well, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to read every self-help book. I'm going to get all the education I can. I'm going to do everything I can possibly do to be the best husband ever. That's fine. But let me tell you something. If you neglect those last five words of that verse, good luck. It better be through Christ, which strengtheneth you. Who's going to give you the power? Who's going to give you the strength? Who's going to give you the wisdom? Who's going to give you the discernment that you need and that's necessary to build that marriage and to build that life? According to the book of Psalms, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. So we know that all things are possible, but they have to be through Him. And He alone can strengthen us. 
So here we have a real reason. We have the real reason why the apostle is endowed with such great confidence. And that's Christ. Christ is the reason. See, he believes that he can do all things by and through Christ, who alone strengthens him. He understands that all power to do and accomplish anything in this life is all a result of his relationship and the power and the strength of Jesus Christ. His confidence is not in his elite education that he had. He had an elite education at the feet of Gamaliel. That's not what the Apostle Paul says in the passage. He doesn't say, I can do all things because I was educated by this tremendous teacher, Gamaliel. He doesn't say that his confidence is in his vast experience in life, of which he had tremendous experience. He didn't say his confidence was, was uh, in his past successes. He didn't say his confidence was the result of a positive self-image. He didn't say that. He said that his, his ability, and he said his confidence comes through Christ, which strengtheneth him. Now, my question tonight, and, and it's not really the message, but I want you to think about this. Why do you have any confidence at all? If you have any confidence at all, you have to ask yourself, where's that confidence derived at? Where's it come from? Because if it is in and through anyone or anything other than Christ, you are unscriptural and you are basically functioning in flesh. It's as simple as it is. Well, I had a good education, therefore I have a good job. Oh, I see why you're so successful then. Because of your education. You have this great and tremendous confidence because you have an education. Your confidence is in your education, not in Christ then, right? No, I give God credit for the education. Well, then why didn't you say that? I'm telling you, if you have a good marriage, why? How? Whose strength is that in? Well, me and my wife work really hard at it. Yeah, I know you do. But let me tell you, you better include something like, you know, we work extremely hard at obeying God's word. Because it's his plan we're implementing and applying. If it wasn't for him and the ability that he gives us, the strength that he gives us to comply with his word, we would be failures. Same thing as a Sunday school teacher, as a worker in the church doing whatever it might be. You and I have a reason to rejoice today. You want to know why? Because we have access to that same power that Paul did. That's Christ's power. I can do all things, he says, through Christ, which strengthen me. Let me ask you, are you, if you're saved today, if you're born again, if you literally have Christ reigning and living in your life, let me tell you, you have his power available to you today. Amen. Man, that's a reason to rejoice. That means there's nothing and no one that can hold you back from accomplishing what God has called you to do. There is no way in the world that the world or anyone else, it doesn't matter who they are, can withhold you from the will and the plan of God for your life. And you can succeed in any area, any arena, because of Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His power. You say, well, what's that power like? And we don't have much time, so let me just give it to you real fast. It's, think about the power of God in creation. Think how powerful God is. I mean, this is the power you have available to you. The power of God in creation. He created something from nothing. From nothing. They're amazing. Isn't that the, 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 the ultimate question? Where did matter come from? It was like, well, you know, uh, time over time, you know, this amoeba transformed into, uh, this uh, transformed into an amoeba, and then the amoeba split, and then all of a sudden it ends up in a, you know, water, and then it goes in there, and finally it starts crawling out, but it don't have lungs, and eventually it grows lungs, and then finally uh, all this crazy stuff called evolution. I mean, there was a big bang, you know. 
I mean, where'd the bang come from? The fact is, is that you already start with matter. God started with nothing. People say, well, you can't prove that. Well, you can't prove evolution. I mean, I thought science was based on the fact of observation. Has anybody observed it? Oh, well, we were looking for the missing link. Yeah, and so was Dr. Leakey when I went to school in the 1970s, and no one has found it yet because it does not exist. And the only links that they do have, they have created in their own mind, and they've also misrepresented fossils and everything else to create something that does not exist. Every time. It's on the front page. Found this tremendous finding which supports evolution. And then all of a sudden, about five, ten years later, it's in the back somewhere in a little paragraph that says, we just found out that they lied about it or that they sawed off some piece of bone and created something. It's always happening. Piltdown man. Neanderthal. Lucy. You know, that half ape, half man thing. They found out later it's just an ape. But for the longest, it's still in books today. It's still being sold as in, to our children in the public school system that that was a person a in between, between human and ape. But yet they know what, without a doubt, for a fact, that it was just a, a little, it was an ape. I, but the power of God in creation. Power of God in creation. You know, the French mathematician, Lecomte de Denoy, he examined the laws of probability from a single molecule of high dissymmetry to be found by the action of chance. He, he, he figured it out. He said, okay, how in the world can, can this molecule be created? Um, what's the probability? Denoy found that, on average, the time needed to form one such molecule, one such molecule would be about 10 to the 253rd power. That means billions and billions of years. He said, in order to, 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 for this one molecule to, to have, have come into existence, it would have taken billions of years. Hold on, though. He, he, he says, but continued to know, ironically, let us admit that no matter how small the chance it could, have, it could have happened, one molecule could be created by such astronomical odds of chance. He says, I'm not going to tell you it couldn't happen, because it could. If given enough time, enough opportunity, it could happen. That one molecule could just come out of it and happen over billions of years. But hold on, he continues. However, he says, one molecule is of no use. Hundreds of millions of identical ones are necessary. Thus, we either admit the miracle or doubt the absolute truth of science. Isn't that interesting? I think that Le Comte de Noy is copping an attitude with evolutionists. I think he just proved flat out. He's a, he's a mathematical mathematician. He's saying, dudes, listen, you can say whatever you want, but creating one little molecule isn't enough. You need millions and millions and millions of them. And if one takes billions of years to create, think about the possibility of it creating all of them. It's impossible. The Lord simply spoke everything into existence, including matter, by the way. He was already alive. He alone lived. And he spoke and matter came into existence. And then he formulated matter through his words. Matter wasn't here and then God showed up. No, God showed up, then matter showed up, and then what matters showed up. What matters is what he created and how they glorify him. Not only do we see the power of God in creation,
creation, we see the power of God in conversion. It's amazing what God can do. We see the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. You know, the Lord Jesus, he promised to rise again. In the book of Matthew 16, 21, he says, From that time forth began Jesus to show his, unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. He started telling them. He was making them aware of it. He, he, did, he wanted to make sure there was no misunderstanding. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to be misrepresented and I'm going to be maligned and mistreated. It's going to happen. Get ready for it, fellas. And then I'm going to rise again the third day after they say they took my life. I'm not going to be like any other person you've ever seen because I am no, like no other person you've ever seen. I am God in flesh. Uh, yeah, I'm all man, but I want you to know I'm all God too. And when they kill me on that cross and crucify me, I'm going to be buried in a tomb. But on the third day, three days, three nights, and let me tell you, it wasn't a day and a half. It was three full days and three full nights, just like the Bible says, he came out of that grave. And he resurrected, just like he said. Matthew 28, 1 through 6, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. As for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Oh, man, that tomb was guarded for sure. But all of a sudden, when they saw what was transpiring took place and they saw Jesus Christ come out of that grave, they passed out as were as though they were dead men. They weren't moving at all. They were out like a light. And before it was over with, we know what transpired there. The Bible records that they went back to their authorities and said, Listen, we understand that, that we were in charge of that tomb. We knew that his disciples may come and try to steal that body. But the fact was, nobody stole that body at all. It just came out. Right. And they said, Hey, let's give you some money and don't say nothing. That's not how it worked in those days. A Roman soldier who, who, who was negligent of his responsibility was required either to take his life or lose his life one way or the other. But in this case, they didn't have a case against these guys. He rose again from the dead and they said, just shut your mouth and don't tell anybody what you just saw. Just tell them that they stole the body. Interesting. Someone says, you can't prove that. Well, you can't prove a big bang, so we're moving on. And the very book that tells me how creation came about tells me how he handled creation. Revelation 1.18, and he, uh, he said, I am he that liveth and was dead. Isn't that good? He came out of that grave. He was dead, but he's living now. Redeeming power. The fact is that the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead will give you victory, victory in your life. The truth is that you and I are dead in our sins and trespasses. That's what the Bible teaches us. Matter of fact, it says, uh, it tells us that. Over in the book of uh, Romans, chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, it says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We were sold into sin, we were slaves to sin. We were dead to sin, uh, dead to, to God, and alive to, 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 to sin. We knew nothing more than that. Sin comes natural to us. Why? Because that's what we are, sinners. Nobody has to call, treat, teach you how to sin. The fact is, once you get saved, you have to learn how to be pure and clean. You have to learn how to appropriate the Word of God and apply it to your life and allow the Holy Spirit of God to work in your life in order to overcome sin. Nobody ever had to teach you to do wrong. Nobody ever had to teach a kid to do wrong. It comes natural. But the Lord Jesus Christ allowed us to be saved and forgiven. 
Hey, he, if you're saved today, that's evidence of the power of God. Because it's not one thing you did to get saved, not one thing I can do to get saved. It's all Him. Now, the Holy Spirit, He prompts you. He, he woos you. He calls out to you. He, he ca- causes you to understand your need of, of, of salvation because of your sin. And you go, man, I am such a sinner. I know down deep I need a Savior. And boy, when you get that, that, that gut feeling, so to speak, and you don't know where it's coming from, I'll tell you who com- it's coming from. It's coming from heaven, and it's the Holy Spirit of God speaking in your heart, telling you, you better get some things straight in your life. The first thing you need to settle is who's your Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. And you say to him, Lord, I deserve hell, but I'm coming to you asking for your forgiveness, and I invite you into my life to be my Savior. I'm not trusting anyone or anything, including myself, to get me to heaven. I'm trusting only you because I have nothing to give you. I have nothing but sin. But, Lord, you are able to save me. Well, I'll tell you what, he'll save you just like that. He'll do the saving, though. You won't do it. He does it. And we see the power of God and change. How many lives have you seen changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? You say, I don't see it as much today as I did. I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why right now. I'm going to show it to you right now. It's all this principle right here. It's this right here. Right there. That's why you don't see it today. You know, you say, well, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, let me tell you this. Christ is the rightful heir to the throne of our lives. That's all there is to it. He's the rightful heir to the throne in your life and in my life as a believer. And you know what? If we want that place in our life, you, have to, you and I have to take it by force. See, the moment you got saved, he came in and stepped onto the throne of your life. You put him in that position when you trusted and received him. The problem is today is that people today are going in by force and taking Christ off the throne. And let me tell you something. If you've got to take him off the throne and it takes force, then that's called battling. That's not peace. That's why you don't have the peace in your life because you're at war with God. Because you haven't run the white flag up and surrendered to him yet. That's why the Bible tells us over in the book of Romans chapter 12, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. He says, listen, you ought to be a certain kind of vessel, a holy vessel unto God, but you have to present yourself. You have to give yourself to him. You have to willingly surrender your will to his will. You got to allow him to remain on the throne of your life. And let me tell you today, when someone gets saved, the fact is they have to make a decision to let God remain on that throne. They got to continue to run the white flag up every single day. I'm about tired of this idea. Well, I surrendered years ago. If you didn't surrender today, you aren't surrendered. Now, I know there's a day we can go back sometimes and we say, I remember the day I surrendered my life to the Lord. And what you're really saying is, that's the day that I said, I'll let him have his will in my life. I'll continue to do whatever he wants me to do. I understand that. But every single day of our life, there is a battle for the throne of your heart and your life. Every day you wake up, you have to make a conscious decision to let him reign on and rule on your life or for you to rule and reign your life. It's up to you. You're going to run that white flag up? Because if you don't run the white flag up, what you've done is you've by force removed him off the throne of your life and you've placed yourself as authority in your life. And let me tell you something, that's a bad place to be as a believer. 
And that's what the Bible talks about. Listen, I've watched God do it in so many lives. He's done it in my life, and He's done it in many of your lives, if not all of them. They shouldn't be doing it in every life. But the fact is, is that somebody that is a wicked, sinful uh, person has lived a life that is so heinous and reckless and so, uh, uh, so disgusting. And we look at their life and we go, wow, there's such a difference. I would have never known that they lived like that all those years ago. I'd have never known that they used to be this or used to do that. I never would have dreamed it. You know what they did at some point in their life? They ran up the white flag. And the power of God's change in their life came. God does the power. He gives us the very strength to run the white flag up. But if you don't run it up, there'll be no change. And that's the problem. We have a world of very selfish people in our world today. Everybody wants to do it their way. We talked about it this morning. Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Well, you can do it your way and you'll get what you get. Or you can do it God's way and you'll get what he wants for you. But you've got to run the white flag up. That's the real key, running that flag up. Now, I could give you a bunch of uh, illustrations, and because of time, we're not going to do that. But I've known and read about men and women who God has touched, changed their life. I've, I've, I've watched it in the lives of people in this ministry, in this church. I've seen it outside of this ministry with people who are bound by sin, and yet God gave them utter deliverance. It's amazing what God did in their life. They ran the white flag up, and God did a miracle. And let me tell you, the very power, the very power, of creation, the very power of conversion, the very power of change is the very power that you have access to every single day of your life to overcome sin in your life and to have victory in your life, to be able to do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth. Father, we come to you. We thank you, Father, for just all you do for us. Lord, again,